Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. And we are live. It's Tuesday, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 5.30 p.m. UTC. If you'd like to watch the show live, it's on the Acquirers Podcast YouTube channel. Sign up, you get a notification. How are you, gents? Doing well. Shout out to the listeners. Happy for Melt Up Edition 2.0. <laughs> Still in the second inning. Bill's trying to trigger me already. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Bill's calling in from sunny Florida. He's got his uh, Good Morning Vietnam James Montier Montier shirt. Shirt on. Yeah. Bought a plot of land. Toronto, you. Dublin. You did? Yep. St. Joe's? No, no, not that plot. Uh, but we'll see. We're my wife and I were just talking this afternoon. Um, my uh, whatever. We belong to like a club here, uh, and um, the people don't believe in wearing masks, and they tend to skew older. So we have this plot of land, which I've defined. Like I told her, I said it's better than cash, but don't get too tied into the idea of building here because I have a feeling a lot of supply may hit the market. <laughs> where we are <laughs> Ooh. hey this is a money game that's a that's Tobin's Plus, cue but in a rough way there I'm saying these people are like really <laughs> old <Brewster's> cue. <laughs> first of all one of these ladies deserves to die I'm sitting there in a mask and she comes up and she says you don't need to wear that it's for the help I was like alright lady I'll see you never <laughs> for the help wow that's right that's a, that's a little that's aggressive. Uh, equated <laughs> It was antiquated, so you can basically pin her age, and she's out there maskless. So, you know, I think her house will probably hit the market. What's uh, what's your topic today, JT? Estate sales. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to be doing lessons from nuclear disasters. Oh, that's a good one. We'll see. What, what do you got on today, Billy? Uh, I think I'm going to go two different places and try to tie it in. Uh, one is sort of risk-taking and how it's morphing as my my situation is changing, right? There was sort of a debate of how much would you bet on a coin flip, and it's very dependent on your wealth, in my opinion. And then I'll probably try to tie that into a discussion I had with somebody that said how hard it was to be a fiduciary right now because with rates at zero, you're just forced to take more and more risk if your clients want any yield. And that usually doesn't end too well. The Fed loves to take people up the risk curve. Yeah. I'll be talking about Einhorn's latest letter, uh, a little discussion on bubbles that I always I always think is interesting. Um, who wants to go first? Jake. Uh, I always go first. You guys are just okay. being lazy. Fine, I'll go first. <laughs> I'm going to keep it clean. I was listening to one of our old episodes and I realized I do curse a little too liberally. So, Just save um, it for the second like half it. when no one's listening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so somebody I had said about Buffett back, I don't know what letter or what meeting he said it, but he said that he and Charlie would bet substantial amounts on a coin flip if the odds were right. And somebody said to me, well, what would you bet on a coin flip? And my response was, I don't think that uh, that's an easy question to answer because given my situation now, uh, like I don't have enough money that I can just mess around and lose it on a 50-50 bet. So no matter how good the odds are, uh, I, I wouldn't press that much of my net worth into it, right? But... Um, I mean, the way that I run my portfolio is somewhat concentrated, so I guess I I put a fair amount, but I think the odds are better than fifty fifty. Um, but it, as I got wealthier, I think I'd be I'd be more willing to bet more on those types because if I lost, my quality of life doesn't actually step change down. I mean, we've sort of talked about this before. I I try to size bets, like my curate bet. I mean, I asked my wife, "How much can I lose before you resent me for the rest of our lives?" That was how I sized That's it. the best sizing um, discussion I've ever heard. That's the risk department uh, chiming in on. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm not trying to do some hero call for some BS reputation when it's going to cost me my family. 
So that's how I think about sizing things. What would you call that, like wife var or something like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. yeah, it's a little bit. Can, that's right. Can I throw some, uh, like, you know, Kelly? So the Kelly criterion for a 50-50 bet with a one-to-one payoff would advise you to bet zero. So you yeah. need, if you're 50-50, you need to be getting better prospects than that. And that's the that that gives you the but that's the outer limit of how much you should bet. That gives you the um, like the optimal geometric growth in wealth if you're doing that. But there's clearly some you know it's there's a there's a there's a distinction between kind of what you need to survive and what is the portion of your wealth that you should be applying Kelly to. That's the way I think about it a little bit. Like you can Kelly bet on the portion that is wealth and the part the part that is kind of like working capital is not kelly bettable so i always make that distinction and then you know it's the outer limit you got to remember that and so your calculations necessarily going to be fuzzy so you probably should be sizing down to fractional kelly for those reasons and you, you're not doing it in sec in sequence you're doing it in parallel so you size down again and that's that's sort of the way i think about it. so kelly uh, is oh, you never I would. There would be never no Kelly circumstances. The rent money. Yeah, I would never. There, there'd be no circumstances where I'd be Kelly sizing into something. Uh, I'd always be some fraction of Kelly. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the nice thing about equities too is you, if you're right on the business and you believe you can own it forever, the right tail gets the expected payout is theoretically infinite, right? Uh, I mean, it's clearly not infinite, but it can really skew your expected value. Your bet, and from what I've seen. The right tail is a lot longer and priced a lot higher than I ever imagined it would be. I think it's interesting that you would bet more as you get more wealthy because that's the you know the the criticism of Kelly is that you get to a point where it doesn't make sense to be Kelly betting where you know you've if you've covered your nut for the rest of your life for everything that you want to do, it doesn't make sense at that point to Kelly bet because all you can do is reduce your quality of life. You know what I mean? If you win, then now you've that assumes that there isn't some step change yeah. level of wealth up there that maybe you're aspiring to. So you're saying you're going to Kelly bet to get the jet? Yes, Kelly bet to the That's jet. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, because I don't need a bigger house. All that a bigger house represents to me is more headaches. So I don't want like I don't really Plus want the a nicer car. To wear masks. I do want a '69 Chevelle very badly. So uh, you know, but other than that, like I really don't. I'm not into the toys and stuff. I want a pretty simple life, but I would like to fly private. So now are you going 454 or 396 in that Chevelle? I don't know. I have to outsource this to my father. I he's more of a fan of the 396. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of want to drop like a crate engine and do like a total resto mod, but he doesn't like the way that I view those cars. But I do. Those are sick. I mean, like gray with black stripes or black with white stripes. Oh, I like the midnight blue with the white stripes myself for that one. I, I Chevelle's a good looking. It's a good looking car, yeah. I kind of wonder sometimes, like, I mean, they've done this a little bit with the like the Challenger and the yeah. Uh, they kind of make it uh take that old body style and make it look better. I always just wonder, like, what the hell happened during the '80s? Where did we? We went so far off the rails. People are tuning in. People are tuning into this episode, just wondering what they've walked into here. It's because Ralph Nader happened. We're talking about resto modding cars. I wish that the Bronco came out and and did like a real legit remake of the Bronco, but they ended up doing something stupid with it. Same with the Defender. There's a lot of cool designs, but it seems like these companies these days don't want to (laughs) win. What do you think about the new EV Hubber? I think it looks okay. I don't know. It's kind of weird to think of a Hummer as an EV, but... Um, it feels a little un-American, huh? <laughs> it does, yeah. Which is kind of ironic since Tesla is American, and that part of it should definitely be celebrated. Um, anyway, the other part of what I was going to talk about... Let's I, talk I about the find, private jets. No, yeah. I did find uh, an interesting... The conversation that I had was with somebody who manages money, right? And he just said that he's got these older clients that are approaching retirement. And how do you talk to a 60-year-old that has like $1.5 million right now that they've they've really thought they'd be able to retire on, and they're looking at bond yields down here? And all of a sudden, you're taking equity risk for yields. I was listening to Dalio talk to... um 
Ritholtz, you know, and he says, well, there's no yield. So now you're looking at price appreciation as a substitute for yield. I mean, that's a scary game. It, it, at some point you'd think it can't go higher. I don't know how high, I mean, I, you know, I'm in team melt up and I say it's the second inning. I'm only half joking, but at some point, all the, all the return has been pulled forward. Equities for yield bond for capital appreciation. We're in a funny world. Weird world, right? And if you don't like bonds for capital appreciation, you can just buy SaaS, which is like a uber long duration growth bond. Same thing. With a little bit of dilution, but you just need the growth to outweigh the dilution and you're winning. I got some tech and some deep value. Am I hedged? Yeah, you're pretty much barbelled, right? <laughs> <laughs> you got all the bases covered. It's a weird world. It's a hard place to invest. I think it's funny that you, you think about uh, more wealth, meaning you can do you're more likely to Kelly bet because that, that criticism, I forget who wrote it now, the one word paper, Samuelson or someone like that, who wrote the one word, one syllable response to Kelly, where he said that, uh, no, <laughs> you don't remember the, 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 the last word in the, in the paper is syllable because he pointed out that he wrote the whole thing in one syllable, but every other word in the paper, I, I wish it, uh. somebody, somebody at home, please tell me, is it Paul Samuelson or is it, uh, uh, somebody, somebody else wrote. A, I'm, I'm getting that wrong, but a criticism of the Kelly paper where they said that the the uh, geometric rate of growth is not what everybody wants because it's a personal decision, and most people will reach this plateau where they don't want to be Kelly betting anymore. But you're going the other way. You're saying you get to this point where you you will start. You'll get closer to full Kelly. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying that I'll get. I'm saying that there is going. I hope if the laws of compounding work and I behave myself that there will be a point in my life where maybe it will make sense to bet enough to step change into the next sort of life of luxury. And I'd be willing to live a less like luxurious life. There's, there's just, there's some amount that I'm just thinking in step changes. It's, not you know theoretically correct it's not in a book it's probably a morgan house's book i gotta read it i'm sorry morgan i know i told you would i would i it's on the back burner but like i bet that that a lot of that book is that way because i like how he thinks about money and the psychology of it and i think behavioral you know it's so it's such a personal issue but for me i mean i i'm not looking to really you know get my overhead a whole lot higher and feel like I need to get money out of my portfolio. But, you know, if there's ever a shot to get a jet, I'm going to take it. <laughs> I don't see this why you uh, wouldn't. I, I, I hope you get there because I'm going to come Yoko. for a ride on yours. <laughs> I'm you trying to get there once. on this podcast. It turns out that we can't even buy the little uh, valve that you screw over the tire to keep. <laughs> we, we, we're getting nothing. Who, who makes those valves? Maybe we should look at investing in them. It's probably a Heiko company. It's probably Transdime. Charging... $3,000 per valve. Shout out. Anyway. Should we... Uh, I, I, got a, I got a topic here. Yes, please. Um, so I, Einhorn's uh, read his, written his latest paper. Uh, he says we're in the midst of a gigantic bubble, which as a number of people have pointed out, uh, this is... Sorry, just... So that the name of that paper that I was talking about is why we should not make mean log of wealth big through years to act our long... Uh, written in 1979 by Paul Samuelson. But well, that's because it's actually harder to read with one. So it, it's he's bent over backwards to write it with one syllable. But you know, give the guy credit for actually getting it done. Uh, it's a nerdy it's, thing to do. I respect it. Yeah, very much so. But he thought so. they were such idiots that he could only write the paper in one syllable so they'd understand <laughs> it. That's that's true. Good for him. A pretty good Funny. flex too to be able to do it. It's hard. Yeah, that's true. Um, I. So I, I read I read Einhorn's paper. Uh, he's, you know, he says we're in the midst of a big bubble. Yeah, sorry. He says we're in the midst of a big bubble. Uh, folks have been pointing out that he's been saying that since 2014. Uh, By the way, do you think he writes these himself still, or do you think there's uh, someone else writing them? Yeah, I don't know. It's signed. It's signed. Greenlight Capital. But that's what you do when you've got partners. You don't sign one person's name. You sign the partnership name. Wouldn't you write it? I'd want to write it. It's the voice of the asking. firm. I'm just throwing I it out I think he there. writes it. Okay. I, I'm amazed that Hussman was able to... Like, Hussman now doesn't write it 
weekly. He writes it, I think it comes out monthly or quarterly or something like that. But he kept that weekly for a long time. Each one of those was like a dissertation. Yeah. I don't know how he did it. Yeah. I don't know. I just wanted to pull out one part of Einhorn's letter because I because I thought it was pretty interesting. It's something that I've discussed before, but he said, uh, on March 10, 2000, nobody knew that it was the top. Even by September 2000, it wasn't clear. There was no obvious event that marked the top. Only in hindsight do people try to backflip, backfit an explanation. And uh, then he says, our working hypothesis, which might be disproven, is that September 2, 2020 was the top, and the bubble has already popped. Um, that doesn't sound like second inning. That's because he doesn't listen to the right podcast, dummy. <laughs> Come on, Dave. Holler at your boy. Inning two. Th- that's that's something that I have noticed before, uh, that the 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 bubble doesn't pop from the top. The bottom, there seems to be some sort of like sideways drift for about a year before you really get into the bear market portion of the bear market. And it is only in retrospect that people go back, you know, so that there'll be some little, there'll be some pullback, but then the market kind of rallies up again or just drifts sideways for a long period of time. And then you get the back half is where all of the... Uh, do you, the what do you think is happening there? Like, is this, is it the psychology, like complacency? Like, I could imagine always... Uh, what Grantham said that there's always retail participation at the very end, right? And that's like one that's of the here. check boxes. Well, okay. So now what are they, they're there to make money very quickly, right? Like that's what sort of sucks them in. You just see prices going up like crazy and you, get, you can't miss out, right? Like it's my chance to get rich quick. Well, if, if things kind of stop going up and they're just going sideways, like boredom sets in and there, you don't have a fundamental reason for owning it other than, it, it was going up before. I'm trying to get rich here. So maybe that's when you start punting it, and then then the sell-off really starts to pick up steam. And I don't know. That's just my uh, well, the, armchair quarterback. You know, the technical analysts call it distribution. That's sideways, sideways drift. And they're like, that's the smart money selling to all of the dumb money. on the. So you get a mm. year of distribution as these guys get out. I don't know if that's true, and I don't know how anybody knows any of this stuff. I think that technical analysis is kind of the same as reading the gizzards of chickens and things like that. I don't think it's really I don't know, predictive. Man. I've, I've sort of uh, morphed on technical analysis a little bit, and I don't know... You I like used the bearish like Shirami? <laughs> no, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm, not fam- I'm not brushed up on my terms. Uh, cup and handle? Cup and saucer? I, I that know. I know. I know the cup and handle. Um, I guess... Head and shoulders? Yeah. So, so Burr used Iron to condor you. No, that's an option strategy, sir. Oh, yeah. uh, Burr I think used one to of mine was a constellation too. Jesus, are you guys gonna let me talk? <laughs> no. Go, Ted. Go, go, go. I mean, Burr used it for a while. Buffett messed around with it for a while. Six years, run. Yeah, I there's in the late 1990s. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just I wonder if there's a way to improve some of. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I have a real tension in my head about it because it's like on one hand, you either believe in buying things cheap and if they're cheap, they probably don't have momentum in their favor and you're probably going to have to watch it go against you for a while. Is there some way to avoid some of like the big value traps with it? And I haven't, I mean, I don't use it, but I'm more intrigued with it than I, I sort of dismissed it and walked away and called it hocus pocus. And now I'm sort of like, all right, I can kind of get it. I understand it as a tool. I don't understand it as a decision making. The way I think about it is fundamental reason. The market is at any given point in time, it's just where the marginal seller and the marginal buyer meet. And we kind of connect them together temporally, like we connect them together to through time and we get to see that there's some relationship between one trade and the next, but I don't think there really is any relationship from one trade to the next i think that they're just kind of like they're just random it's it's literally a random walk and as a value guy the advantage that you have is that you have some idea of what this thing is worth that is distinct from the random walk that it follows on your screen so if it randomly walks down to a price that gives you a big expected return then you buy and if it randomly walks up to a to a price that your expected return is now low enough that there are other better expected returns around again, you sell. But that's sort of... And then um, you get fired. And then you get fired. I, sort of, 
I sort of agree with that, but I don't agree with it because momentum is too proven for me to really believe that that random walks are truly random. That's true. That's fair. But so I, wait, I don't, I don't disagree with what you're saying. How does that work? Isn't there someone also buying on the other end of every market sell-off? <laughs> yeah, it's some poor market maker just cash on the sidelines. Leave them cash on the sidelines. I got to give uh, credit to John Husband. I didn't understand. I, like that kind of that made sense to me that yeah there are people who sit out there with cash wanting to buy but as he points out every time a, a trade goes through there's a buyer and a seller so there's no cash on the sidelines it remains the same well so the other thing that this guy that i talked to said which makes a lot of sense i mean he <laughs> he manages like uber net worth like high net worth uh people he said a lot of the really rich clients that he has they just said screw it and they just went to cash and they're like, I don't, I'm not getting anything in bonds. I'm not taking equity risk. And he said the cash balances are way, way bigger than he would typically advise. But at the same time, how's he going to tell him not to do it? But somebody's bought it, right? Well, yeah. I'm just saying generally, I think it's an interesting behavior that's going on. And I've seen it in my own account. Like in my brokerage account, I just I used to buy treasuries when there was any yield. And now I just yeah, don't really no care. Point. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to waste my time with this. I see what you're saying. So rather, it's not a... It's not a uh... They've already sold out of their equities. It's just whether they buy treasuries or whether they just sit in cash. I see. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's just not. They want three three bips on a CD. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like it's cash. not worth it. Um, uh, as far as the bubble goes, I guess that there's too much value in value for me to think that there's some like massive. Uh, but I guess in '99 you did have this dispersion, right, where the high flyers are the high sort of got like nuts i i there's no way that all of these stocks are in a bubble there's also no way they're all worth this and there's no way that you can listen to like greenblatt say this and look at the valuations and like i mean everything that has worked seems to be like a good story that feels good and has options in it and things like are going well and those are working really well right now. And anything that like if, if somebody pitches some company that's got a reasonable cash flow yield but a hairy story, it just can't catch a bid right now. And that does not make sense to me fundamentally. I don't know if it's a 99 type market. I, th I think that there are those elements in it, but I don't think that 99 is the right analogy. I think it's more like a it's a, it's a nifty 50 type market where – you know, the 50 stocks in the Nifty 50 were really great businesses. They were technology, high quality technology businesses that were growing very fast. And the story that supported them was coherent and good. It's just that valuations got away from the Nifty 50. And that was what ultimately brought them back to earth. I think that something like that is going on now. Like I do think that the companies that are, I think that the, the market has roughly got the rank order right. Although I do think there is some, 99 type behavior in that there are some companies that are not the fan mag or some of these smaller SaaS yeah. cannot be rank ordered correctly that's right there's some there's that's where in I the middle there is the issue is. that's right but then i think i look at you know i look today so you know it's a good day for for famg uh it's a bad day for value and i look at the famg stocks they're like google is Google is on it is transitioning to a value stock because I saw that it didn't participate today and like it's starting to it trades with the value trash and not with the high flyers and the rest of the famji just think that's funny you get a capital allocator in that thing and it would really scream that's the shame of it well I think they're doing it on purpose aren't they no, I don't know maybe I mean I a little bit but come on guys if everybody work, wakes, up, wakes up to the fact that three blokes control it Enigma machine yeah There'll be pitchforks, as Jake says. I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I think also, too, some of the the difference in 99, I think, is... I mean, it was shocking to read that the bottom decile, I think it was, of cheapest in 99 had higher returns on equity than the, the top decile. Right. Yeah. So, like, there was a real quality to that cheap basket in 99 that I think made it much easier to pull the trigger and be in it relative yeah. to today where now That's you're fair. like, uh, there's some okay trade-offs business, yeah. pretty good price. Uh, is this what I'm, is this the hill that you want to go die on? 
You have to you have well, to be a handicapper. Well, you're into some bad decisions, right? Because it's like, ugh, do I want to buy this thing at a good price when it's sort of if I'm going to own it for a long time, my returns are probably going to be like, eh, I don't know. Yeah, I think I think that uh, there is some. Um, I've just completely lost my train of thought, so I got interrupted I actually, by the tweet. Ironically, I sort of disagree with Pabri's conclusion that now is not the time to play the re-rating game. I actually think the re-rating game could get you pretty paid. Uh, because some of them are too cheap, like some stuff just it can't it will not be bought. It's crazy. I, I I remember what I was trying to say. I think this is a you know as value guys should be doing most of the time. What you're doing is you're handicapping. You're handicapping what the gain that you're going to get from the risk that you're taking on when you do it. And it what happens in these bubbly type markets is that particularly this one that is more like a nifty fifty type market where really it's just looking at is this thing growing all the time and don't worry too much about the price. I mean, I've seen guys literally tweet that out. So I, I, you I almost can't pay too much. You almost can't pay too much. Yeah. Well, to be fair, if it's small and it's growing, I sort of get that sentiment. The other thing that I like is, does it make you feel good? <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Oh, the only reason that I think that there's some validity in that is it could give you the conviction to hold and that could overcome a behavioral bias that could impede your ability to re realize any return. But the idea that you should like be making investment decisions based on your feelings seems sort of fundamentally uh, opposed to the whole idea of being rational. Maybe you're at one with the investment universe. Maybe you've reached we'll mastery. That, yeah. <laughs> I'm not. We'll see how that... Uh that whole sentiment changes as price changes as well that all those good feelings you have yeah well or to your point like let's see some of these stocks go sideways for a while now maybe they won't like maybe we're just three morons and i, I get it and whatever i'm but, confident we're three morons yes yeah, well that, that's that true that is checked. that's proven <laughs> yes like monkeys throwing feces at each other um but uh i guess i i would like to see a world where the businesses grow, but the momentum stalls a little bit. And I'd like to find out who really owns businesses. Then they can find out what it's like to be a value manager. So all you SaaS bros prepare for what happened the last 10 years to value. And then you can see how fun it is. And then everyone can call you an idiot for paying too much. I, I don't, be great. I, I don't wish bad things on other people. But... <laughs> yeah. You, you can get trolled by random Twitter accounts, uh, you know, that haven't done half the work that you've done. It's super fun. It doesn't bother me at all. Mental fragility. Just going to disintegrate. <laughs> uh, JT, well, I respect your ability to take it, sir. <laughs> I, 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 I don't mind at all. It's all, you know, it's, uh, I've, I've adopted this new stoic uh, philosophy that I, I think I had been doing it. Um... I mind. Fuck that. I said I wasn't going <laughs> to curse. If you're listening to this shit and you don't think that Toby has put in the work to come up with some, like, reason that he believes what he believes, then you're a fucking dumbass, okay? Like, this guy has thought about whatever you're coming at him about. He's thought about it, okay? Now, whether or not you agree with the conclusion is one thing, but to comment, like, I, I, it, it offends me big time. I appreciate that, but don't, don't, don't worry about it. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all because, because I'm not relying on... I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not going to ask my enemies what they think about what I'm oh, doing. Know. You know, I'm, I'm, I know what I'm doing because I've done the research. Like that's, that's the only well, place I'll that you can you get what. to. I'll take the toxicity out of your heart and I'll wish <laughs> ill upon them. Mate, it's, yeah, I, I got plenty of love in my life. I can have a little hate. I, I've, 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 I've reached, uh, I've reached the stoic Zen state by, you know, I've, I think I did it intuitively and then. I was very grateful to Jake to introduce me to the introductory books, and so it's uh, and some conversations with a mate of mine in Australia, Stu McKinnon, have like have have got me very straight on all that. So I feel I'm I'm equal, uh, even keel at the at this point. It just annoys me that people don't think that you've thought of this stuff. It's like, yeah, I'm sure sometime in five books he never had the thought. That's why it's a market. Mind. Like, come That's on. why it's a market. I know. The tweet that preferred shares shared the other day, which you guys have commented about in the past, was sort of in that 2013 area. The thing that we all missed, and I wish that I was smarter back then, is there's no way that all the multiples should have been that compressed. That was that was a bad, bad, you know, miss in retrospect. Jake at Economic pointed out the same thing. Jake Taylor wrote an entire piece about it. Uh, talking about the worst value opportunity set in 25 years, which came out in 2015. 
he was dead right. He showed it to me. I read it and fully understood it and did nothing about it. So uh, that's my. Don't feel uh, that's bad. My you guys could have in Compound Town. We should have been. We, we should have been, been the leaders of Compound. We made a mistake. But well, live and learn. That's right. Get get the next one. Let's eat some veggies. Okay. So this is lessons from nuclear disasters. And as you guys know, I my uh, my background before was running the power grid. So I, I, I have a lot of fun doing these kind of little research projects. I uh, feel like I'm bringing my worlds together. So <clears throat> this is uh, based on a lot of it on this book, really good book called Meltdown. That's by Chris Clearfield and Andras Tilsik. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. I apologize. Uh and, which came as a original book recommendation from uh, Caffeinated Investor. So shout out to him for this. Thank you. Uh, so it's 19. Oh, into the Jake tricks. The Jake tricks. Hey, he's back. Yeah. Oh, sorry. What? Uh, just just you, fr you from the date. From the date. Yeah, yeah. I didn't say anything after that. So it's, it's 1979, That's Harrisburg, it. Pennsylvania. And. Uh, this little thing called Three Mile Island. You guys might have heard of it. Um, so it started out as just a simple plumbing accident. Nothing special about it. Uh, and it, you know, it turned into a huge disaster, but the causes of it were very trivial. And there's no earthquake or an engineering mistake. It's, it was a combination of small failures. So you had this little plumbing glitch. You, you had a failure of pumps to send water to the steam generator. Uh, which had an increase the pressure in the reactor, which then uh, there's an opening of a pressure relief valve and it failed to close. And then there was a, a misleading indicator to the operators uh, that there was a stuck, the valve's position was stuck open. So it's like a and, sequence of, you need this you need this very precise sequence of things to go wrong, but it, it is possible for all of those things to go. They're low probability events, but they all go wrong at the same time. That's right. So, and it, all of that happened in the amount of time that it took me to read that. It was 13 seconds. Wow. Right? So, and in less than 10 minutes, all of the damage to the re reactor core was already done. Hmm. So, wow. uh, you know, this thing, the failure was driven by the connection between the pieces as much as the pieces themselves. And a cupful of non-radioactive water led to the release of a thousand liters of radioactive coolant. Uh, which ended up, I mean, people end up getting cancer. There's a whole, whole like long tail of problems from this. Uh, this researcher named Charles Perot studied it, and he calls these like normal accidents. And what he means by that is that they're they are bound to happen because there are these little small things that are going to happen. And when they when we increase the coupling with the tightness of the coupling in our systems, we end up with a cascade of failures because of that, right? So the complexity increases the chances that it'll happen, and then the coupling increases the cast the chances of of cascading errors after that. Uh, and so he had this he draws this uh, like little kind of axes. On one axis is like increasing complexity, and then the other way is tighter coupling. And up in the upper right hand quadrant, where you have t very tight coupling and high complexity is where you have the biggest meltdowns. And Perot said that the, the financial system exceeds the complexity of any nuclear plant that he's ever seen, right? We have a very complex system that is increasing in complexity along with a tighter and tighter coupled system. So really, I mean, it, what's difficult is that um, you, you can't see necessarily like you can't find all the problems just by thinking about them because of this complexity there are there are interactions that are so weird in complex systems that you'll never be able to predict them you can't and you then you can't predict the chain of errors that's going to happen because of the tight coupling right and so those two parameters you know you get to thinking about like how much are we courting this with just-in-time supply chains uh, that increased a tighter and tighter coupling. Uh, we have, you know, add the Internet of Things, where now everything is increasingly interconnected, um, which is a tighter coupling. Uh, you know, algos for everything, which I think adds a layer of complexity because 
one of the things of like transparency is a, a great antidote to complexity. When you have, when you can't actually see the system that you're looking at and get a status on it, it becomes much harder to, to, to diagnose problems, right? And so when everything is a black box and an, and an algorithm, we don't know why it's doing anything. Um, you know, the world, we're just really increasing the complexity of everything in the world. Um, can I just real quick, uh, just to take the devil's advocate part of that, there's an argument to be made that through a lot of these uh, social media platforms or something, you're actually reducing the black box, right? And you're pulling back the curtain. Now, it's got its other problems, right? But um, I think that is what some people would say, so I figured I'd bring it up. Also, do you even roik, bro? <laughs> <laughs> so... I would say in that social media instance, perhaps you are in, in maybe adding transparency, which might reduce complexity, but you're also greatly increasing coupling, right? Like things, yeah. like systems are tied more and more, people are tied more and more together. Um, ideas can transmit faster through that network now. The um, group think of it scares me all, but that's a separate issue. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things too they found is that, that homogeneity, it will greatly increase coupling. Huh. Uh, so yeah, indexing, you know, as a, a very homogenous idea increases the coupling of our of our markets. Dude, if indexing just ends up really bad, can we just all agree that like it, something I don't know how it went bad, but if everybody is just putting their money into a vehicle that buys stuff at higher and higher prices and no one is paying any attention, like if that ends up bad, it's not that unforeseeable somehow. But that that'll be the best thing that happens to the market. That'll be the best thing that ever happens to us. Fundamental value, guys. No, it guys. won't, dude. Because like the people will get destroyed. Let's go. I, mean, oh, I yeah, know so that we'd that, be that okay, it, yeah. but I'd feel bad for like the people that were told this is the right thing to do, and then once again they feel screwed. Yeah. Well, that's fair. So that's another another thing is that it, trust in systems creates tighter coupling because people stop doing their own work and their own calculations. And they just trust that the system is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah. <clears throat> so what's the what's so, the app? Yeah, sorry. I do have some. I do have we some have questions. Another, we have another meltdown to go to. Um, <laughs> so Japan's northeast coast, and there's this tiny village called Aniyoshi, I believe. And on in that village, there's this stone tablet, and on it it says. Dwellings built on high ground will ensure the peace and happiness of our descendants. Remember the calamity of the great tsunami. Do not build homes below this point. And it's that was it's from the 1930s. And there are all along the coastline in different towns there are these these like stone tablets basically in the ground that say don't build below this point. This was where the water came up to in 1870 or whatever it was, right? And you know, of course, with time, people sort of forget about this. They haven't seen water there. And what do they do? They they start building down in the lower areas, right? And they forget. Uh, they have to go relearn the lessons. Um, <clears throat> but, of course, 2011 and the Tohoku earthquake as a 9.0 earthquake off the coast of Japan creates a tsunami. And that leads to the Fukushima meltdown disaster. Um, so... You know, what, what can we think about? Like, there's a lot of, of old lessons and sort of rules of thumb that might be, we could consider the tablets or the, the stones th put in the ground. Uh, so you think about somebody like Walter Schloss. Like, he would probably have a rule that said, like, I, I don't pay more than 10 times P.E., and it doesn't matter what other good things are happening with this business, but I'm just never going to pay more than 10 times PE. He doesn't go down into the valley any lower than this point, right? And so, and there's lots of time periods where it, everyone is, you know, you built your house there and it's no problem and you're getting by with it, no problem. But then every once in a while, there's this long tail event that happens that will completely destroy your house if you don't pay attention to the longer term, uh, you know, the 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 tough lessons that your ancestors learned and, and tried to warn you about. And I think we ignore a lot of that, especially in times like this, where, you know, every, you buy things that feel good. You, you know, you're not as conscious about price. Um, I would I just say, like, maybe talk about value your... managers, not buying compounders in 2015. 
Uh, sewing, well, yeah, sewing the five years of pain. I don't. I, I guess the answer is that you you need to find your own sort of tablets in the and put them in the ground for yourself, so that you don't go building your house in places that that have historically been wiped out in previous uh, tsunamis. There's. It's not when this doesn't when it doesn't go well for a lot of these people. There's not going to be any. You could have seen it coming, right? Like that is the the real answer. Like if you did enough little bit of work on history, you could see it coming. When you if you overpay for things, it typically eventually will not work out for you. So anyway, that's what I got for today. The people I worry about the most are the people that are coming into Twitter, seeing the accounts that have done really well and thinking that like that's the strategy that they should maybe adopt, you know, without uh like I said, I I, I actually think David Gardner's approach is pretty freaking smart. Like I get it. Um but you got to be him to implement it, and he implements it early. He doesn't implement it at the end. That's that's the part that I worry about some you know people, but everybody's got to get a tuition somehow. I think that there's um there's something in Taleb's approach to it where he says uh, it's difficult to figure out you know what sequence of events will lead to the calamitous outcome. Like it's hard to figure out what combination of little outlets and valves and sensors failing and lights failing that will get you to the point where you have the meltdown or the stock market crashes or the business falls over but it's Mm -hmm. not hard to figure out that something is fragile that it's vulnerable i think that that's a that's a much more robust way of thinking about things like if you what's the likelihood that there's going to be another 100 year storm that comes through and blows the water up to this point like it's low it's it's probably very very low it's like 1 in 100 it might be 1 in 100 yeah <laughs> but it might be less than that i don't know maybe maybe we don't have enough data we've only got one data point i guess i literally defined it that way so that's fair but then <laughs> but then it is foreseeable that it could happen and like so maybe you just think that the loss of a house given that there has been an event like in the last hundred years that got us to this point. I mean, I, in, my, in, the, in the city uh, that, I, that I lived in before I came here in Brisbane in Australia, they have these plaques up on the walls, in the, like in the downtown central business district in the financial district that say, and I used to walk past these every day, it would say the, the flood came to this point in 1974. And it's like six feet off the ground in the middle of the city. I'd just be like, that's, <laughs> that's absolutely insane that that water got that high. That, that like what's the chances that'll ever happen again and then after we left there was another flood that got to the same level so mm. the chances are pretty good like it happens pretty regularly it turns out don't build below that point so i'd mm. say yeah look for vulnerabilities rather than the sequence of events that ends in the the bad outcome what and i don't I know how to do are are <clears throat> trying to forecast these things is incredibly difficult and more like probably trying to forecast a tornado than rain Right. Like we're pretty good about figuring out like, well, it's it may rain tomorrow, but knowing where a tornado is going to touch down, what's going to be impacted. It's such a more complex you know, idea. Uh, and I think that more accurately describes what we're trying to figure out. So rather than having thinking that you need to know what the answer is of why this is going to blow up is not as helpful as just realizing that eventually because of the complexity and the tight coupling something bad will happen even if it's just little small errors that add up together uh and therefore tread a little lightly like be a little bit more careful be a little bit more judicious i was chatting with my boy tiso about this this morning actually i called him drop the kids off sitting there thinking about the buff dog as i do and i said to him i said you know like buffett's so optimistic about the future but he didn't buy stuff like costco a long time ago not forget about like now or whatever like he he had the shot and why do you think he didn't take that shot and why do you think he's so stringent on multiples uh or what he pays and i think the answer that uh tiso gave that is probably right is like he watched Coke go through what Coke went through and he watched Geico go through what Geico went through. And he's probably got a better sense of how things can unravel 
or maybe over like weights that more than the typical investor, whatever it is. Like he, he, and he also knows what like a really, really good setup looks like. So what may be enticing to some people, he's probably like, I've seen this deal before, you know, like a hundred times or whatever. I don't know what it is, but um, it could be also, just, it could be as simple as he's got a threshold return that he requires from risky investments. And if he can't, foresee the threshold return being delivered via you know future growth and the current yield if if it doesn't get over that threshold then he just doesn't invest i know but it's so hard for me to buy that costco never hit that it's really really yeah, hard never. and it's yeah. hard for me to buy that like munger wasn't in his ear like dude you need to seriously look at this but like i just that's the one I even forget, like, I forgive Google. I, I even forgive, like, Visa and MasterCard. I kind of, I get, I mean, I don't know that I really get it, but I, I kind of forgive it. Costco, I just can't get over. Could it be a conflict I, issue? I don't know, maybe. Mm. I mean, he got his, he's had his face ripped off by retail a few, few times. So yeah, that's fair. maybe he was just like, you know what? Retail My side. batting average isn't that great in retail. I'm going to just kind of. It's got a. I'm gonna take a pass on most of these. How is it yeah, in airlines? His boy is Munger, and like Munger is so smart. Like, I mean, just once you might want to be like, "Oh, Charlie's really right on this." But then he figured out airlines. No, he didn't. But that's what I mean. Like he was able to, like he crossed the Rubicon with airlines, and then just like turned the army around, marching back over. It doesn't matter. We're <laughs> not taking fair, over Rome today. Airlines, my beloved. It's so sad. So airline weekly popped up in my complexity stuff. and tight coupling. I mean, yeah. pandemic is the perfect example of we were ripe for something like that. Yeah, well, Sarab Madan had said to me a while ago, he's like, you know, the thing that I just can't get to in airlines is like you're living in a state of unstable equilibrium, I think is what he said, or stable equilibrium. I don't know exactly how he put it. He put it way smarter than I know how to say it now, but it's like just a little bit of tipping can knock the whole apple cart over and turns out why, why is that can you can you run that run that by me again i can't i'm probably putting <laughs> words into his mouth i feel I, bad i like the way it sounded it. yeah i know i need to i need to look it up uh basically Austin. you know it's a term in physics where you have uh like it's it's a system that it, it's maybe not inherently stable but it's currently stable and i think pile. that yeah, yeah, I think a little bit of that. And, I, you know, I, I still don't know quite how to feel about it. I don't think anybody that pitched airlines said, and by the way, a pandemic could come knock out all their revenue for six months and we'd all be fine. So I'm not I'm not sure how much of this is resulting, but... Um, why, why is it not inherently it stable? Because I, I guess the argument for it would be something like there just probably aren't going to be any more big airports built. And so there are a finite number of places to park planes. And so if you have a place to park a plane, then that's a pretty big competitive advantage. Yeah, I think that that works. I think that thought process works if the plans can't ever get bigger or denser. I think the the problem that that industry, like if I was going to criticize the industry, I'd say, okay, well, a gate shortage doesn't mean it's a seat shortage. And okay. you still have labor costs that are going up. And they were running into a pilot shortage, which is absurd to think of now. But it's unclear that with the, the consolidation, the thing that people get super wrong about all the consolidation stuff is there were there was more competition per route than had existed before. Uh, shout out to Phil Ordway for pointing that out to me. So How's like, that? How does that work? Just because the way the networks overlap. Right. Like you can, you know... If you get six subscale guys flying, your flight paths don't necessarily have as much competition, even though it's counterintuitive. Um, so, if, so if you, you have know, if you have lots of little regional airlines, it's harder to kind of get yourself from A to B. But if you've got a, f a f few bigger networks, they can see the full path more easily, and so they start selling more on that route. That's right, and they can start to divert planes to more profitable routes. They get a sense of you know, how the travel is working and what Got routes it. are profitable. So Herb Keller had yeah. that great line where he said the problem with the competition in, uh, in airlines is that if your competitor goes out of business, the, the air, the, the plane just flies from where it, like the, somebody else picks it up, the plane flies yeah. and it's back working on another route somewhere else. 
Or they came yeah. out recapped and cheaper, right? Then their labor costs were lower. Well, that's the disaster. Not ideal for a long time. That was the challenge, right? They'd go, the, the, t- the most expensive carrier would go through bankruptcy and emerge at the other side as the cheapest carrier. And then the next one was like the domino ready to fall into bankruptcy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. We should answer Masa Suncap because he's coming at me on the Twitter machine <laughs> earlier today. I don't know. So what does he want to know? He wants to know Amp Financial versus Wells. Amp probably does better. Like, why the hell would Wells catch a bid? Uh, I just think Wells is going to be a better organization in five years, and I don't think there's a huge downside. I have no idea what the downside in Ant is. It's probably zero. It's probably the best investment ever. I don't fucking know. What's what's Ant? Is that the... Uh... There's another curse word. Darn it. Is Put that... money in the sweater jar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's got to be like Alibaba's financial arm. I have not done the work to know what it, it like, what the possibility is it's probably backed by the chinese government or something i have no idea like i don't know so part of my ignorance on amp financial for now I've, I've had my focus elsewhere as far as fiber versus cable goes if i was building a network today a greenfield network i'd rather do it with fiber what's um, the question fiber versus what just why doesn't like at&t steal share with their fiber overbuilds from cable companies and look, I think that it's something to be aware of. I think it's a legitimate risk to be aware of. I think cable companies have the uh, consumer relationships today, and I think that AT&T and Verizon really messed up selling the the uh, MVNOs, right? Or yeah, I think that's yeah. the The ability to sell a wireless plan for the cable companies, I think, was really letting the fox into the hen house, and I think it was a major strategic mistake. I just I don't fully understand the difference between the two. So what, what are they saying that wireless has a competitor to to they're fiber saying optic fi- cable? Fiber over overbuilders are a competitor to cable companies, right? So historically, like cable has been a much better technology than DSL, right? So the question now is, if AT and T is going to build fiber to the home, why does AT and T not beat cable? I think some of the answer in my head is cable already has the scale. And you're not gonna like you don't build out fiber and automatically hook up sixty percent of the homes. So now you have to be willing to advertise and eat that and grow into that. And it's possible. It's but... inevitable that fiber optic cable gets built out over coaxial twisted pair or whatever that backhaul, whatever that other backhaul that they're using is. It's it the technology. like whatever you're using, whatever technology you're running over coaxial, and that has been getting better and that has helped it keep up. But fiber optic cable is so much better that it's inevitable that that is it has to be overbuilt over everything else. Maybe I don't know. We'll see. You got Cable Labs coming out with 10G cable, more amplifiers, baby. Yeah, but the fiber the same thing. This, the technology improves also in uh, in the glass, and the glass is just there's you can stick more on it. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's something to watch. The it's not just what the best technology is, though. It's also what the legacy uh, customer relationships yeah. are, and does it make sense to overbuild all that? Well, in AT and T's case, you're also hemorrhaging Directv subscribers, and HBO Max is going to divert some attention. It's just you know that's a that's a but big it, entity. That's fair, but at some point, the question will be like, do you just want to get ten or a hundred times faster? connection and the the dsl will eventually just the technology will eventually not quite be able to get there and then it will be fiber optic beyond that yeah i think i think what malone's answer to this all is is there's no reason that those two separate um infrastructure plants need to exist and someday wireless and cable are just going to merge well wireless always needs backhaul so yep the you don't want to be relegated to just a backhauler like that's not a great business well, if you control, if you're the, it could be, I mean, it's possible that that's the most profitable part in the network. Yeah. If you've only got know. backhaul, like wireless needs backhaul. And so you could just say, guess what? We control all the backhaul prices going up. What are you going to do? I suspect that those are monopoly routes, but. It's a monopoly route to my house. What about, uh, what about Tesla's Starlink? I see Samson Nakarobi has a question here. What about Starlink? Will Starlink wipe them all out? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's too it's too, it's too hard. It's too hard to you just can't get enough data through it. I mean, this is what I know about cable. Okay, this is what I, my my absolute known. 
they have a lot of connections. It's not that easy to overbuild and steal a cable customer and to roll a truck out and to set people up and to give them an you know, four hour window that they're going to have to be where they have no perceived benefit in their entire life because their broadband's already working. And if you start to get into like Starlink or 5G, if it's raining outside and my internet goes out, it's a non-starter. Like I couldn't even deal with DirecTV doing that. Forget about my internet. Like the, especially after work from home, like this, it's got to work. So I think the barrier is going to be really high to steal relationships from existing cable companies and, and probably fiber relationships. I'm not trying to trigger all the fiber bulls. I agree. It's a good technology. I'm just saying. Um, throw your questions in and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at them here. But like I would never <laughs> sign up. Ignore for, them. <laughs> I would never sign up for satellite internet ever. I mean, you could, it makes sense if you're in some remote part of the world, if you're on a boat in the middle yeah. of the Caribbean and then get, get get a satellite get fiber get get fiber to the fiber to the boat how far away is the fiber to the boat technology yeah that's right we're right we're almost there well what was that uh there was some uh company that used to do satellites and that was some of the iridium yeah iridium you got it yeah that's where you need your boat stuff I, I got I got a good one here what cracks this market election with split house and senate tesla fraud charges big tech legislation if I had to guess out of those three, uh, Republican Senate and Democratic uh, president, because Republicans will figure out they care about spending again. Uh, I'm going to go with D, none of the above. Didn't you listen to the whole segment on complexity <laughs> and coupling and how you don't know what the, where the errors are that are going to lead to the failure? Yeah, I have no idea. I don't even know if it will crack. Who knows? It's I was just... given three to choose from. <laughs> What's, you I don't. Know. I don't think it will. Like I don't know. The, the I the problem that I have with bubble talk is it implies that there's some crash coming, and I just don't know that I actually buy that. I just think that there are pockets of froth that are probably not going to get a lot of return in the future. I don't know how it happens from now from here to there. I do know that rates this low is probably going to cause a big problem sometime. Do you know one thing that I watch is the 10 year and that I didn't look at it this morning, but it has been slowly creeping up. Like it's coming off the absolute lowest base in like 2000 years or something like that. So, you know, it's still pretty low, but it has been uh, creeping up slowly, but surely I I forget where it was yesterday, but it might've been like 87 bips or something, which is ridiculous. I know, but is it interest rates? Oh, if rates go up? Yeah. Oh, we're fucked. <laughs> that can't happen. Who's we? Everyone. Yeah, the, the government. Imagine what would happen if rates went up. Well, if the like, federal rates government's actually gone. went up in a, in a relatively quick amount of time, I mean, who can service their debt then? And then good luck on the wealth, wealth effect. Yeah. I mean, I think we're all sort of really long rates, right? Do we get I mean, one? Maybe not, but. Do we get one more of these in before the election? Is this the is this our last chance before the election? What? Podcast. Oh, no, I think we'll have one on election day. Oh, we have one on election day. That's right. Oh, so bumper oh, special Christ for election almighty. day. This is, the, this is the Halloween special that comes in before the election day. Whoops, we forgot to dress up. <laughs> I, the thing about like the election, though, is... Bill didn't. I, Bill did. Yeah, Bill Bill's got Bill's coming I really... I do, I do worry... Uh, what might happen in a Republican Senate and a Democratic president. But outside of that, I mean, everybody's just going to spend. Keep the party going. Right? I mean, if Trump's in, you know they're going to spend. He's done it for four years. If the Democrats get everything, they're going to spend. So, you know, just don't own cash. The, the fact that there have been no consequences yet, isn't that kind of evidence that MMT works? Well, that's what they're going to say, right? And they're going to be like, well, look. That's what Kanye was saying, wasn't he? Like, how much does the earth cost? That's right. That's great. If money makes people happy, why don't we just make more money? Makes sense to me. There you go. Yeah. I'm sorry I haven't looked at Ant. I should look at Ant. I'm sure it's very interesting. My research projects are elsewhere right now. I was saying that before we closed up. Yeah, rates are an interesting... I mean, what... This is probably too much like macro doom and gloom bullshit, but it doesn't it feel like 
they don't have anywhere else to go now. Like they are in such a corner. Like they can't re- yeah. they can't let rates go up for the government debt. They can't. Like their only answer is just going to be to print more money. There's negative rates around the world. You don't think we can go negative? I think currencies is the place sure. to watch because the currency market's so big that it's hard to control. That's where I think some stuff might really start to crack. Are but I don't know still what bond or vigilantes. How. Remember that? That was like a thing in the. 80s bond vigilante what was the idea that, that they just stopped buying your they'd stop buying your debt and so your interest rates would go up your coupons could would you go imagine up. just real quick imagine what companies with like 400 million dollars of revenue would be worth if rates were six percent like and there was like yeah. actually cost of capital to investing in, in things it'd be insane <sighs> that's a long that's- way down from here but it can't happen, right? I mean, it can't happen overnight. It would be it would be devastating. People's like the real estate market would go to shit. Like we're playing, we're all playing one big wealth effect game in my mind. So would you say that maybe we're not all as wealthy as we think we are on these latest marks to market? I don't think I'm that wealthy on this mark to market. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's time. Thanks, folks. Uh, tune in next week where we will ignore the election uh, on, on a Tuesday. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't really want to talk I about it. I won't be talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> See you then.